Esther 2, chapter, um, Esther 2, verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favour. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background, because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. 
During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Keep your Bibles open, actually, because I'm going to, um, (laughs) thank you, I'm going to summarise the rest of the book as we go. Thanks, Kate. Um, So you might want to just have it open to flick through and and, um, as as we we see what ends up unfolding um, in the life of Esther. Well, the story of Esther has everything a film director could look for in a plot. There is a king, two queens, a harem, a beauty pageant, multiple extravagant feasts, a villain and a murder plot. So it's no surprise then that so many books and movies have been made about this book of the Bible. There are romance novels like A Reluctant Queen, The Love Story of Esther, or Esther, The Star and Scepter, and movies like Esther and the King, Musical Adventures in Faith, or One Night with the King. And what almost all of these have in common, apart from the fact that they somehow managed to turn Esther's relationship with the King into a romance, is that in almost every case, uh, they insist on uh, portraying Esther uh, as the heroine of the story. She is viewed as the model Jewish woman who is an example of faith, virtue and piety in the midst of all the twists and turns of the storyline. The trouble is that in order to pursue that particular narrative, you have to give the whole story a kind of makeover, an extreme makeover. Uh, In most cases, the authors and directors don't just leave things out Uh, they actually add things in in order to make Esther more heroic, more attractive, more virtuous. Even um, the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, which was created by Jews in the second century before Christ, did the same sort of thing. They added in material like prayers um, from Mordecai and Esther in order to make them look more devout and statements from Esther about how strongly she detests having to be forced into marriage with a heathen king. Because there are parts of the story, including that part that was just so um, beautifully read uh, to us, that we could be forgiven for raising our eyebrows at a little. What is she doing there in the palace, in the middle of a beauty pageant aimed at gratifying the whims of a narcissistic pagan king? Why does she cooperate so energetically with the beautifying regime in the lead-up to her night with the king? And why is God not mentioned at all? If Esther is the heroine of the story, what are we to do with all these troubling aspects of the plotline? 
And if God is the hero, how do we deal with the fact that he's so absent from the way in which the story is narrated? Well, the story of Esther is set in Persia with King Xerxes on the throne in Susa as the king of the whole Persian Empire. We're told in chapter 1 that Xerxes was a king who liked to party. He's just hosted a party that lasted for six months before moving straight into a banquet that lasted for seven days. And he's on the seventh day at this point and he's in high spirits from wine uh, and he summons his wife Vashti to the banquet so that he can show off her beauty. Vashti is holding her own banquet and she politely declines the request. Now, of course, Xerxes is the king and so this isn't really a request, is it? And her refusal ends up with her being sent away. It would be problematic if the women in Persia were to follow her example and not do as their husband said. Then in chapter 2, we see Xerxes uh, work out a plan with his courtiers to replace Vashti. There'll be a competition to see who he will choose. It's like an extreme version of The Bachelor. (laughs) They bring in virgins uh, from throughout the land into the palace uh, and they're going to be given beauty treatments for a whole year. Uh, Before one at a time, they will spend a night with the king and they're probably not going to be playing Scrabble with him. Um, At the end, he will decide uh, who pleased him the most and she will be the winner. And this is where Esther enters the story as one of these contestants. We're told in chapter 2 that she is a Jewish orphan and she was raised by her cousin Mordecai. Now, this raises a lot of questions. They are uh, in exile from Israel. Their ancestors had been part of a group that had been taken from Jerusalem uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in the 6th century B.C., This capture by the Babylonians was punishment for Israel's sin against God. By Esther's time, though, the Babylonian Empire had been taken over by the Persians. Cyrus the Great, a Persian king, had told the Jews that they could return to Jerusalem, but some didn't, including Mordecai and Esther. So the first question that we're left asking is, why didn't they return to the promised land when they had the chance. We also find out that she's changed her Jewish name, Hadassah, to the Babylonian name Esther. And that's based on the name of a Babylonian goddess called Ishtar. Mordecai's name is also inspired by the name of a pagan god. And not just any pagan god, but the patron god of Babylon, Marduk. His name literally means worshipper of Marduk. So we're left with a pretty strong impression that Esther and her family are not trying super hard to be faithful to the covenant and to the God of the covenant. They're far from home and they're in no hurry to go back. They're living at the centre of a pagan empire and they're blending in pretty well. And then we find out that Esther is taken to the palace to play a part in the competition to become Xerxes' next queen. And before we even get to the difficulties with the competition itself, it's, it's worth asking why she entered it in the first place. Um, as a woman in that time and place, as a, 
uh, under the authority um, of her uncle, I do suspect it's unlikely that Esther had a whole lot of say in the situation. But there is no evidence in the text that she was dragged into the contest and, and some evidence that Mordecai did encourage it. And there's no suggestion of any protest anyway. And we know from the rest of the Old Testament that God had warned his people not to marry foreigners for fear that they would lead them into idolatry. In fact, this was exactly the kind of thing which led to the Israelites being led into exile, into Babylon in the first place. Then when she gets to the palace, under the instruction and supervision of Mordecai, she deliberately conceals her nationality and family background. She goes to great lengths to hide her Jewishness, even though there's no indication from the narrator that there would be even a threat to her at this point in the story. Esther also seems to go to great lengths to find out how to please the king. In chapter 2, we find out that she wins the favour of everyone who saw her. Uh, She deliberately ingratiates herself with uh, Hegai, who was in charge of the harem, and he in turn gives her extra beauty treatments, seven extra attendants, and moves her to the best place in the harem. When she asked him what to take to the king, she follows his instructions carefully. And she could have just gone through the motions and not taken anything in there with her if she wanted, but everything about her actions suggests that she is out to win the competition. And when she goes into the king, we're told that she wins his favour. Now, while this is portrayed as beautifully romantic in some of the Esther film adaptations, I really doubt that there was much romance involved. Then, once she wins his favour, she's living the life of a princess. And it seems that she got into that privileged situation by very successfully ingratiating herself with the Persians. At this stage of the story she'd have to be about the most compromised Jew in the whole of the Persian Empire. But the story doesn't end there. Uh, We're moving on at the end of chapter 2. Mordecai, who sits at the king's gate, hears about a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. He tells Esther, who tells the king, and saves his life. In the next chapter, the Jews in Persia are suddenly put in great peril. Xerxes has promoted Haman, who we are told is an Agagite, above all the other nobles. Everyone is commanded to bow down to him, but Mordecai refuses. We don't know why he refused, but we're told that he repeatedly refuses, and now the royal officials have learned that he is a Jew. They tell Haman, who decides not just to punish Mordecai, but all of the Jews, and he asks Xerxes to destroy them. Xerxes gives Haman the authority to do what he wants with the Jews and so Haman writes a decree in the king's own name that all the Jews will be killed on the one nominated day. So suddenly the Jews are in real trouble. The decree is sent out across the Persian Empire and the Jews mourn with sackcloth and ashes when they hear the news, including Mordecai at the gate to the palace. Esther hears about Mordecai's mourning and sends one of her attendants, Hathak, out to him. Now I'm going to read now from um, chapter 4, the next part of the story. It's chapter 4, chapter, uh, verse 6. And we'll read what happens then when she sends one of her attendants out to him. So from verse 6 of chapter 4. So 
Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king and the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Well, to readers like us, it sounds like a pretty reasonable idea for a wife to approach her husband and ask a question or make a request, doesn't it? But within the context of the story, we're told uh, that Esther is taking a serious risk, even by appearing before King Xerxes without being summoned. And to choose this moment to reveal that she is a Jew uh, when the Jews are under a collective death sentence is an even bigger deal. There's something genuinely, undeniably courageous in that moment, I think, when she says, if I perish, I perish. And there's a hint in the direction of the role that God, the invisible, unmentioned God, plays in the story when Mordecai says to her, who knows, who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Because across the middle chapters of this story, the coincidences and ironies and reversals start to accumulate. God is never explicitly mentioned, but a story from which he seemed at first so absent becomes increasingly hard to make sense of, apart from the presupposition that he is there. Esther survives her encounter with the king, and he even agrees to her suggestion of a banquet in honour of Haman. In fact, he keeps telling her that he would give her half the kingdom if she wants it. Haman, meanwhile, becomes increasingly angry that Mordecai will not bow down to him and erects a pole with the plan of impaling Mordecai on it the next day, and that comes back into the story later. Meanwhile, it just so happens that the king can't sleep the night before Esther's banquet. And to help with his insomnia, he asks for the book of memorable deeds to be read to him. 
the section that is read aloud just happens to be about the time that Mordecai saved his life by telling him about the assassination plot. And the king suddenly remembers he's never thanked him. And so the next day he asks Haman to suggest a suitable reward and Haman, thinking that of course the king is wanting to reward him, uh, suggests a parade through the town. And then that results in Haman having to lead Mordecai through the town on horseback, proclaiming this is what is done for the man that the king delights to honour. That night the king hosts uh, her banquet and when the king asks her what her request is, she doesn't ask for half the kingdom. Instead, she asks him to save her people, the Jews, from death and destruction. And then when the king finds out it's actually Haman who's responsible for this order against the Jews, he's enraged and Haman's attempts to then uh, plead with Queen Esther makes things worse and Haman ends up being impaled on the very pole that he erected in order to kill Mordecai. The rest of the book of Esther sees the king announce another edict which will give the Jews the chance to defend themselves and then there's a war where the Jews kill and destroy their enemies and then Esther and Mordecai are given more and more power and influence and a festival called Purim is established so that the Jews will always remember how God delivered them from Haman and his plan. So that's the story. But what does all this mean for us living in 21st century Sydney. A story about a young woman uh, living two and a half millennia ago who enters a beauty contest, uh, becomes Queen of Persia and then goes on to save her people doesn't feel that close to home. But Esther's God, invisible as he is within the story, is our God. And Esther's story connects in some important ways with our story. And the book of Esther has some important things to say to us. For one thing, I think that Sydney in the 21st century and Persia in the 5th century BC have more in common than you might think. There's a lot about Esther's story that reminds me of my own spiritually dangerous situation as a modern, middle-class Western Christian. I live my life surrounded by paganism and prosperity and I feel a strong pull to blend into the pattern of the non-Christian world around me and and too often I do. So the story of Esther is a great encouragement for people like me. Uh, So much about Esther's life in the palace would have tempted her to think that her chance to be loyal to God and his people had long since passed that she'd made her choices and chosen her lifestyle and that it was too late for anything different. Um, And yet when it comes to the crunch, she's incredibly bold and brave. She's prepared to risk not just her luxuries and her comforts, but even her life for the sake of her people. If there are areas of my life in which I've blended into comfortably with the lifestyle of the non-Christian world around me, and made compromises that I should not have made, the story of Esther gives me hope that it's not too late to uncompromise. There's a strong encouragement to seize the moment that God puts in front of me and be willing to risk security and comfort and approval to be loyal to God and to his people. God, in his kindness, hasn't finished with me yet. He gives me constant encouragements to choose the way of faithfulness, to keep bending my focus uh, back toward the promise of the kingdom, 
and he gives me stories like the story of Esther uh, with the deep, deep compromises that she makes and gets caught up in and the incredible part that she ends up playing in the working out of God's plans and purposes. Which brings me to the second great encouragement that I find in the book of Esther, the encouragement of the constant, invisible, mysterious presence of God. Throughout the story, it has all these subtle reminders that God is working in all the details of our lives. Esther herself couldn't have possibly known how God was going to orchestrate the details. She just has the general truth about God's sovereignty and his covenant with Israel and the who knows question about the particular purposes God may just turn out to have for the circumstances he has put her in. So as Mordecai says, and who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Every day is a day that God is at work in my life. I don't get explanations of what he's up to and why he's doing it. I don't know in advance which day might turn out to be a really pivotal one in my life or the lives of those around me. I don't know what particular part God might have planned for me to play and what good works that he's prepared me to do. But I know that he is at work and The book of Esther encourages me to keep my eyes open and my heart ready for the opportunity that he may put in front of me. In the past year, my father-in-law has had some serious health problems, which led him to be in hospital for months. Um, Finally, he was discharged to go back home, and my parents-in-law found themselves having to rely on family and a whole set of our healthcare workers to manage basic tasks at home. This was not, certainly not something that they had planned for or hoped for and as people who have spent their whole lives um, being committed to serving others, it must have been really tempting for them to feel pretty useless, like to assume that their time of contributing something within God's plans and purposes was over. As it happens though, that has been far from the case. Suddenly in a situation that they would never have chosen, no longer able to drive a car and largely confined to their house, they have found themselves engaging in a whole new way with health professionals and support workers from all kinds of cultural and religious backgrounds, a number of whom have been incredibly open to conversations about my parents-in-law's faith and about the gospel may end up turning out that a conversation they have with one of those care workers could save a whole family. It may not, but maybe it will. My own parents were saved because of a series of Christians that God placed in their lives over a number of years. There was my mum's high school friend who became her flatmate when they went to college, and my babysitter who was also a scripture teacher at the school where my dad taught, Uh, the woman who met my mum at a bus stop uh, when my mum had just moved into town and and, and uh, she invited her to the church playgroup that led to my sister and me being sent to Sunday school. All of these people were placed in the lives of my mum and dad by a gracious and sovereign God. In most cases, uh, I think they were completely unaware of how he was using their actions and words uh, to work in my parents' hearts. But... They were faithful to him where he placed them. And that made a powerful impression on my mum and dad. 
Uh, They've now been Christians for almost 40 years. Uh, My sister and I share their faith and so do their grandkids. That's a lot of people to have been saved, all through a few faithful Christians that God placed in mum and dad's path who had no idea at the time what God was up to and what would come out of their faithfulness. It's exciting to think that God can use us in incredible, unpredictable ways as part of his big, complicated, intricate plans and purposes. And it's liberating to know that I don't need to worry about how God will work through me. My job is to trust God, to be courageous for the gospel, to be loyal to Jesus, to be wise with the wisdom that God gives, and to get out of the bed in the get out of bed in the morning and honor God in whatever he puts in front of me. And in eternity, I will get to look back and realize what God was accomplishing through it all. Despite what the movie directors and romance writers might think, I think Esther's journey as a character in God's story makes it an even better plot. Ultimately, sometimes through and sometimes despite Esther and Mordecai's various plans and interventions, we see that he is in control of all the events uh, which are happening in the palace and beyond in Persia, and his plans are merciful and gracious. It's a story we see over and over again in the Bible as we see God showing mercy and forgiveness to his people as they rebel against him. And we see the ultimate act of grace when he sends his own son to die for a new community of Jews and Gentiles, people forgiven because they've trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is great news for us here today. If you're here today as someone who doesn't know him yet, the invitation that brought you here this afternoon could end up being an event you look back on as a turning point in your life. Have a chat with Kate or Megan or me after the talk if you want to, and we'd love to talk to you more about the next steps that you might take in order to get to know him better. And if you're here today as someone who's already professed faith in Jesus... How wonderful it is to be reminded from the story of Esther that our merciful and gracious God is at work invisibly in all the circumstances of our lives and that he could change us and use us as part of his plans. How wonderful that he's in control of all those details. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God. We know that too often we can be tempted to blend into the culture around us. We pray that you will help us to see the ways in our lives where we can change. And we thank you that you are in control over every detail of our lives. Please help us to be encouraged and emboldened by that knowledge as we live day to day. And we thank you for Jesus and the salvation he brings. I pray that all of us here today will know his salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.